Thank you, Bill. you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark 11. Uh, Mark chapter 11, today will be in verses 20 through 25. Let me read this portion of God's Word uh, to us as we begin this morning. Hear the Word of the Lord. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's inerrant and authoritative word. Let's pause and pray before we continue this morning. Father, do uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word, both as I preach it and as we read it on the page in front of us. Quicken us with your Holy Spirit. Uh, fill us afresh that we might hear and apply your word. We need grace your grace at work in us for this to happen. So, Savior, we commit our time to you. Strengthen my throat and my voice today. Strengthen us as listeners. Strengthen our hearts, Father, to hear. We cast ourselves on your mercy, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Faith that moves mountains was evident in the life of a church literally moved by the hand of God. Uh, the church stands to this day in the village of Swan Quarter, North Carolina. Before it was built in 1874, the congregation had their hearts set on a very, very desirable plot of ground, but the landowner of that ground was unwilling to sell it. So the disappointed congregation built their structure on an alternative site, but could not help but cast longing glances back at that other piece of property that they so narrowly missed. Well, it was September 16, 1876. Uh, as their new church was being dedicated, a hurricane hit the village of Swan Quarter. Reportedly, heavy rains and storm surge pushed in from Pamlico Sound and flooded the town until the village and surrounding area were under five feet of water. The winds were strong and relentless, and the new church building floated off its brick pilings and began the journey which led to this story. 
the church traveled north and then east, eventually reaching the exact piece of property the congregation had attempted to buy earlier. After turning itself around to face Main Street, the church settled onto this higher piece of ground and remained there. Title to the land was eventually obtained in 1881. This sacred building still stands on this plot of land ratified by the hand of God. Its name has been changed from Methodist Protestant Church to the Church of Providence, with the site being claimed as holy ground. Uh, the church, still moved by the hand of God, uh, says on its website, still holds regular worship services, and the public is invited to, t to attend. Well, it's not quite what Jesus describes in our passage this morning, but you have to admit it's pretty close. Uh, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. But Jesus holds out this kind of mountain-moving prayer uh, to his disciples in the passage that we've just read. And by extension to you, me, and every follower of Jesus Christ. So what's involved in mountain-moving prayer? Is, a, is it a, merely a, a name-it-and-claim-it kind of thing, as, as many, many uh, attest? Or, or is there more to it? What's required for mountain-moving prayer? That's what we want to find out in the verses before us this morning. There are two parts uh, to our passage, and we, as we examine these two parts, we'll find uh, what's required for mountain-moving prayer. In the first part of our passage, we find Peter's astonishment. Uh, Peter is astounded when he sees the effect of Jesus' curse on the fig tree. Uh, let me mention two things uh, uh, that he is astonished by. And the first is simply the fig tree itself. Look at verse 20 in your, in your copy of God's word, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Obviously, this is connected with the previous account that we studied last Sunday. Uh, it tells the story about Jesus on his way from Bethany down here. Uh, this is facing uh, northwest. Uh, the temple faces uh, due east, I believe. So uh, they would spend the evenings over in Bethany um, at the home of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And this traces the goings and comings of Jesus from, from Jerusalem. Uh, the previous day, they were on their way uh, to the temple. And uh, Jesus in the distance saw a fig tree in full leaf. This would usually indicate that there was immature, unripe figs present on the tree. And feeling hungry, Jesus stopped to inspect the tree, but found nothing. There was no fruit on the tree. Uh, so Jesus cursed the fig tree that morning, saying it would never produce figs again. He was using this as an illustration of Israel and worship at the temple in Jerusalem, as we saw last week. He, 
Israel's worship at the temple, like the fig tree, gave the appearance of bearing fruit, but in reality there was no substance there. There was, there was no fruit. And just as he cursed the fig tree, Jesus would also curse worship at the temple through his prophetic actions in verses 15 through 19. Well, verse 20 is the following day, the next morning. Um, having spent the night again in Bethany, Jesus and the disciples are headed back into Jerusalem. And when they pass the fig tree, cursed the day before, uh, look at how Mark describes the tree's condition. It was withered away to its roots. His curse had struck at the very heart of the tree, uh, to the very center of the tree, to the source of the tree's life. And in doing so, Jesus had destroyed the fig tree. We'll see in uh, the chapters ahead that this is what will happen to the temple in Israel as well. So to begin with, Peter's astonished uh, by the fig tree, astounded that uh, Jesus cursed the day before had completely destroyed it. Well, there's, a, there's another thing I want you to see about his astonishment. And he's astounded at Jesus' words that all this was accomplished through Jesus' words. Notice verse 21 now. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Peter is astounded uh, again that it, the tree's withered to its roots, that it was completely destroyed, but that all this took place through the power of Christ's speech, through his spoken word. Uh, all Jesus did the previous day was speak to this tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. So powerful that they not only destroyed the tree, his words also destroyed the tree in the span of 24 hours. It, it was not uh, like a tree that slowly dies in your backyard. First it drops its leaves. Uh, the next season it doesn't produce leaves at all. And uh, it slowly loses its bark and branches. And uh, unless you get to it quickly, it'll be falling down before you know it. This is not like that. If you had been there watching the tree, you could have seen it wither away in the space of a day. We don't even know that it took all 24 hours. Matthew indicates that it didn't. But Mark only tells us that after a day, they found the tree completely withered away and destroyed. And so Peter's astonished uh, that the fig tree withers all because of the powerful words of Christ. So powerful that the tree dries up in 24 hours. Well, this is Peter's astonishment. He's astonished at the fig tree withered away to the roots and second, he's astonished that all this took place through the words of Christ. Well, this brings us to the second part of our account, and we move from Peter's astonishment to Jesus' assurance. Jesus uh, assures Peter now that such mountain-moving prayer can be made by any believer. And let me point out two things in Jesus' assurance. Uh, first, we need to ask, what is mountain-moving prayer? 
What did Jesus mean by prayer that moves mountains? Well, look now at verse 22 with me. Uh, Verse 22, and, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Take note of the first phrase up in verse 22. uh, And Jesus answered them. It, it, It might not be clear how this assurance from Jesus connects with Peter's astonishment. In fact, you hit 22, and it sounds like a very jarring change of subject uh, from talking about a fig tree to suddenly talking about prayer. Uh, But the first phrase makes it clear that Jesus is simply replying to Peter's astonishment, uh, 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 replying to his uh, being astounded at the fig tree. Jesus' answer is about praying for things that seem impossible like a fig tree dying in the space of 24 hours. But he escalates the conversation from a mere fig tree dying to something that seems even more impossible, which is moving a mountain. Look at the wording of verse uh, 23 again. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain... um, Jesus is obviously referring to a specific mountain, this mountain. He could be referring to the Temple Mount itself. As uh, here's the Temple Mount over here. Uh, remember that people always traveled up to Jerusalem, no matter which direction they came from. This is because the uh, Temple Mount, Jerusalem itself, uh, sat on an elevation. And uh, they're coming from Bethany down here. And as they reached the Mount of Olives, uh, the temple would have been right before them across the Kidron Valley. Uh, Whoever says to this mountain could be a reference to the Temple Mount. It could also be a reference to the Mount of Olives itself. In other words, Jesus was pointing down when he said it. Whoever says to this mountain, be moved. Uh, There's a better uh, choice Uh, I think a better option, and and it uh, ties in well with what Jesus says here. And you can't see it on this map, but from the crest, as you came to the crest of the Mount of Olives and looked away to the south, you would see a large volcano-shaped mountain. Uh, It might not be a mountain in in what you and I would think of, who've been to the Rockies uh, and other mountains, but looking away to, to the south, they would have seen this, a, a volcano-shaped mountain to the south. And on the top of that peak was the, the fortress of Herodian. Uh, this was built by Herod the Great. It was a stronghold in case rebellion or war came to his uh, region, the region he governed that they could flee to and be safe. Uh, But to complete this fortress, Herod uh, had to use slave labor, and I don't know if you can see the shape of, why am I pointing there? (laughs) See the shape of this, 
uh, this uh, huge support and uh, mound that the fortress is built on, all this uh, came to be by slave labor who moved it from another mountain. Uh, of course, it changed the landscape, but this is how the fortress of Herodian came to be. This, uh, this uh, mound work uh, came to be through slave labor. And so, of course, it would be uh, very uh, graphic for Jesus to point away uh, to this fortress uh, for which Herod had moved a mountain to construct to say, to say to his men uh, another object lesson that they would be able to do far more than curse a fig tree. And they would be able to do far more than move a mountain as Herod had done. That's what he says. They would be able to move a mountain and cast it into the sea. Uh, and so the phrase moving mountains eventually became a, a proverb for referring to anything that seemed impossible. Uh, sometimes we refer to uh, very skilled people and say, oh, he can move mountains. Well, Paul used it this way too in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So what Jesus has just done in cursing the fig tree was a model to his men of how they could draw on the power of God when confronted with the impossible. And really what any believer could do when they face the impossible. This is what Jesus meant by mountain-moving prayer. Prayer for that which seems impossible. And haven't you had your share of mountain-moving requests? I know many of you have. You've encountered situations that seemed impossible. We've prayed for a number of mountain-moving requests in your lives over the years here at New Covenant. And that's what he means by faith to move mountains or mountain moving requests. Well, from uh, describing uh, what it means to move mountains, Jesus goes on to give us three mountain moving requirements. Now, let me say that I don't think these are all the uh, conditions that are necessary for effective prayer, but Christ only names three. And the Holy Spirit was inspired to just name three here in these verses. We would interpret this passage in the light of other texts as well uh, that talk about prayer. But there are three here that I want to point out to you this morning. Three conditions that must be met for mountain-moving prayer. Uh, Jesus names three requirements in his reply to Peter. The first requirement for mountain-moving prayer, I'll move it up to a different slide, is the body of Christ. Now that seems odd. 
many of us would, would never think of the body of Christ as necessary uh, in prayer to move mountains. In his reply to Peter, he's specifically referring to prayer that is made with and among other believers. Now, how do we see that? Well, that Jesus is referring to prayer made with and among other believers becomes obvious when you read this in the original language. When you do, you can see that many of the pronouns and verbs are plural. For example, at the beginning of verse 23, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, Jesus is speaking to all of his men and by extension speaking to you and me as well. And then if we jump down to verses 24 and 25, everything is plural. Every pronoun is plural. Every verb is uh, uh, in the second person plural. Therefore, I tell you, plural, whatever you ask, uh, plural in prayer, believe, uh, plural, that you, it's all plural verbs and pronouns. Jesus isn't referring to private prayer in his reply to Peter, but prayer that's made with other followers of Christ, prayer that's made among the fellowship of the saints, prayer that's made with other believers. One scholar put it like this, prayer is here presented as something which the community of disciples undertakes together, not a private transaction between the individual believer and God. So here it comes obvious why some of us never experience mountain-moving prayer. It's because some of us never share our needs with others in the body. Some of us never share the impossible situation we're facing, the mountain-moving situation we've encountered. Maybe it's because we're too proud to admit to others that our backs are against the wall or too proud to admit that we're clueless in our circumstances. Too proud to ask others in the body to pray for the mountain that's in front of us. Maybe that's why some of us don't experience mountain-moving prayer. And this reply to Peter from the Lord Jesus, yet another proof that our relationship with Christ is not an individual thing. Wow, I wish I could just like get the Goodyear blimp if it still exists to fly around with that message streaming from the back. Our walk with Christ is not an individual thing. It is, and it's always been a group project. Do you remember? I remember when my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Kramer, he had this thing for working in groups. And he would stand up and announce, okay, we're going to do this. I'm about to assign a group project. And there was a collective groan across, across the classroom because, I don't know, it's probably educational, uh, educationally advantageous, probably a good thing to do, but, oh, man, I hated it. <laughs> then there was the group presentation. Ugh, hated those even more. Well, I hate to break it to you, you that fall into that category. Your walk with Christ, 
It's a group thing. It's a group thing. It's a group thing in, in your little church that lives in your home. But it's a group thing with this fellowship of believers here. It, it, it's never been an individual thing. It's a group project. So this is the first requirement for mountain-moving prayer. Yeah, it's an odd one. It's one we probably wouldn't normally think of. But the way it's worded, the, the pronouns and the verbs that Jesus used indicate that mountain-moving prayer is, is prayer made with and among other believers in the body of Christ. The second requirement, which is the one you'd probably expect, is confident faith. Uh, we must make our mountain-moving requests confident that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Uh, confident faith is such an important requirement that Jesus mentions it three times in his reply to Peter. First in verse 22, and, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. And then in the middle of verse 23, and, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. And finally in verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it. His repetition of these words for faith or belief tell us that confident faith is of immense importance in mountain-moving prayer. We should, we should uh, just stop for a second and ask what the object of this faith is. What does this faith lay hold of? It's important to note that the faith Jesus is describing here is not justifying faith. The object of this con confident faith is not the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. This is not the faith through which someone lays hold of Christ for salvation uh, and the forgiveness of their sins and, and finds peace with God. That's a, that's a different kind of thing. The confident faith Christ is referring to here in these verses is a broader, more general expression of faith. Its trust is not the atoning death of Christ, but the promises of God's word. Confident faith believes that every word God has spoken is true and that he will fulfill every promise of his word. And furthermore, confident faith trusts in the character of God, that, that he can be trusted, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he has the power and desire to help everyone who is genuinely trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. Listen to Pastor J.C. Ryle express it. The faith spoken of in the passage now before us is a grace of more general significance. It is rather a general confidence in God's power, wisdom, and goodwill towards believers. And its special objects are the promises, the word, and the character of God in Christ. Well, we learn as we go further that this confident faith is the opposite of doubt. And we see this in verse 23. Notice verse 23 uh, again. Uh, let's start in the middle. Be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. Uh, 
but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Doubt refers to hesitation, uh, wavering back and forth in your opinion about God. It's uncertainty that God has told the truth in his word. Uh, it Doubt is the uncertainty that he will keep the promises he has made. It's what we read about just moments ago in James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generous, generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not uh, suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Maybe this explains why we never experience mountain-moving prayer. We don't trust God to keep his promises. We doubt his character. Now, you know good and well that he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But yet you feel so alone. Maybe he hasn't kept his promise towards me. Maybe he's abandoned me. Maybe he won't keep that promise. I put it to you that such thoughts that God could fail to keep his word are are the very tool that Satan uses. If God failed to keep his promise towards you, failed to keep his word, if he lied to you, it's unthinkable that he should, because if he did, he would cease to be God. Can you imagine God ceasing to be God. Can you imagine that he's kept that promise over so many centuries, but you? <laughs> You're a different case. For me, no. Uh, I'm special and he won't keep that promise for me. I hate to lump you in with the rest of the saints, but yes, he will keep the promise for you. But it's so common that we we waver back and forth. We doubt. It's, it's the strangest thing that every new circumstance that pops up, uh, Spurgeon talked about this uh, uh, a week or so ago, a day or uh, a few days ago in morning and evening, that, that it's always the new mountain that makes us doubt. Sure, he's moved that mountain and that mountain, but this mountain... And some, uh, somehow our minds just kind of uh, freak out about this new mountain. And we think, no, he can't do that. He, this is too much. Uh, it's, uh, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But I do it all the time. You might do it too. I, I know of only one remedy for this. 
this doubt, this wavering. And, and that is for you to immerse yourself in descriptions of his character. I mean, throw yourselves into descriptions of his character. And, and by this, I mean, throw yourself into those Old Testament accounts that reveal God's tireless patience towards Israel. Throw yourself into those, those accounts and the accounts of his faithfulness to, to his people. His accounts of his faithfulness to David. His, uh, the accounts where God is faithful to his Davidic covenant. I'm thinking of Psalm 89. And, and other passages that throw you, uh, even the book of Jeremiah, throws you into passage after passage about the character of God, about who he is. There, there's no remedy for this wavering opinion of God and this waffling about whether he will keep his promise unless you just plunge into scripture and saturate your mind so that you can't see anything else but his faithfulness before your eyes. Allow these to loom large in your life. And stop thinking about your mountain as so large. And start thinking about God as immensely, immensely, infinitely bigger. The other part... That's one part, uh, to, to get past this doubting and wavering. You've got to immerse yourself in these descriptions of who he is. And the other part, I hesitate to bring up, because many people don't really care for it at all, and that you have to memorize several key Bible verses that describe his faithfulness and constant provision. Yes, Word for word. And memorize the reference to the address, as some people refer to it. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. This, was, this is something we think of as something for our children. That is absurd. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I'm, I think I'm quoting it in the King James. Because uh, that's when I learned it, when I was a tot. Ah, passages uh, like this one. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So that whether or not you have your big honking ESV study Bible with you or not, you can whip something out and tell yourself the truth. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's, that is a, a, a redundant phrase. The loyal, unending love of the Lord never ceases. It's a beautiful redundancy saying the same thing two times. The steadfast love of the Lord, the unending love of the Lord never ends. <laughs> it's what we need in our minds to get past this doubting. And verses like this one, Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Some of you use this very verse. I know you've memorized it and tucked it it away. And it teaches us that he who did the greatest thing, not sparing his own son, how will he not do lesser things for us when when we ask according to his will? I think of one that I... I read just this morning that I had memorized years ago from Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah 32, 17, that I can't seem to get a, get a hold of. Here it is. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And we have these mountains in front of us, and they're too hard for us. No question. There's no way we can, we can, in our own strength, handle the mountain. But this is talking to the creator of those mountains. Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, Nothing is too hard for you. It's nothing for God to take that mountain that stands in front of you and and flick it away. And so, friends, I plead with you to arrive at this confident faith, to plunge yourself into into Bible passages that recount uh, the, the greatness and the patience and the steadfast love of God, and then take some of those and memorize them. Put them in your memory so that when the mountain looms up, you'll have something quick on your tongue uh, to say to yourself, to preach to yourself. Use that verse to grab hold of your shirt and shake yourself while you look in the mirror and say, Self! The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Slap yourself once or twice if you need to. (laughs) Wouldn't that be entertaining? (laughs) What are you doing in there, dear? (laughs) This is the second requirement for mountain-moving prayer. Confident faith. And this, unfortunately, explains why so many of us never experience um, mountain moving prayer and answers it's because we waffle like James describes we're double minded yes he will no he won't yes he will no he won't well there's a third requirement f- for mountain moving prayer and that is a spirit of forgiveness this might be the hardest one of all three a forgiving spirit Mountain-moving prayer requires that we forgive those who have wronged us. We find this requirement in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Again, this this is perhaps the most challenging of, of all three. The word forgive, very simple, means to forgive, to cancel, or pardon. In the New Testament, it can refer to God's forgiveness of sin 
to canceling a debt or to pardoning an offense. There's no fancy technical meaning to this word. And look at the immediacy of this requirement. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. Apparently Jesus meant that at the moment you're praying, anytime you're praying, and recall that someone has offended you, you're called to forgive that person, to to cancel his or her indebtedness to you, to relinquish your right to get even with them. There's an immediacy to it. And and then look at the extent, the breadth of this requirement. Jesus makes this sweeping statement. If you have anything against anyone, finally, he names the result of this requirement that our Father in heaven may forgive our transgressions. The same theme is mentioned by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, and where he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is a reference to uh, the forgiveness of our daily offenses. Uh, This is not when we first come to Christ. I think I have a verse here. Well, I did have a verse, but here it is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We should go before the Lord on a daily basis to be cleansed from our sin and the pollution of the world that affects us. But if you and I withhold forgiveness from someone who's wronged us, God will also withhold our daily cleansing from sin as well. You and I who have been forgiven so much, you and I who commit treason against the Lord every day, who have greatly wronged Him and been forgiven, we cannot withhold forgiveness from others who've wronged us. If we've wronged the Lord and he has canceled our debt and forgiven us, how can we withhold forgiveness from someone who wrongs us? This third requirement and most difficult requirement for mountain-moving prayer is a forgiving spirit. It requires that we forgive those who have wronged us. I'm not talking about ignoring uh, when a crime has been committed or anything like that, anything having to do with law enforcement. There can be other qualifications to this as well. But again, we might not experience mountain-moving prayer because, (laughs) frankly, there are some people we just will not forgive in our lives. We withhold that forgiveness, and so... Uh, we don't experience uh, the mountain-moving prayer that Jesus describes in our passage today. So we see these requirements for mountain-moving prayer. Jesus names three conditions here. The body of Christ, we pray with the body. Confident faith that doesn't doubt his character or doubt his word. And a forgiving spirit that forgives those who've wronged us. This is 
his assurance that he gives to Peter. Uh, these mountain-moving requirements. You, you'll be able to do far more than, than kill a fig tree. You'll be able to move mountains. Do the impossible. So, what's involved in mountain-moving prayer? It is, uh, is it a name it and claim it kind of thing? I, I think we've seen from the conditions Jesus gives here, it's, it's nothing like a name it and claim it kind of thing. What's required then? Well, we've seen the three requirements that uh, Jesus gives, and I just said them a moment ago, the body of Christ, uh, confident faith in his word, and a forgiving spirit. So I'm going to guess that maybe one or more of these has uh, the spirit is kind of pressing into your mind. Um, Perhaps are the Lone Ranger, think you're good enough to get through life all on your own. Uh, from Scripture, I would just have to tell you, you are wrong. You're waffling back and forth about whether God cares about you, and uh, maybe you've got a really lousy view of yourself and think that God couldn't possibly stoop to hear your request and that His promise doesn't apply to you. Again, I, I would just say, you're wrong. And if it's your opinion that, you know, you can harbor a grudge against this person who wronged you maybe years ago and just just go forward and that forgiving others uh, our debts, uh, uh, forgiving others their debts, and asking God to forgive our debts, you think you can, you can just skip that one again? You're wrong. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we pray for new covenant to be moved off its foundation and move down the street. We've already moved down the street once. I'm talking about that huge thing that looms before you right now. That huge thing that you and your wife talk about every evening. My goodness, what are we going to do? I don't know what it is. Could be uh, uh, something at work. You've never experienced anything like this. You could lose your job. What are you going to do? Could be a relationship with a family member. It looms large. It's tall. And it's laying right in front of you. I hate I, I hesitate to name anything else because it probably won't be what you're experiencing. And you might walk away and thinking, well, he didn't name my thing, so I guess I'm okay. You're wrong. <laughs> We all have mountain-moving things come into our lives. And Christ invites us to come before him uh, with the body of Christ in confident faith, 
with the forgiving spirit so that he can work on our behalf for his glory. Let's pray as we conclude. I pray, Lord Jesus, that your good spirit would massage each of these things into our hearts. Uh, Lord, that in the area where uh, we're uh, lacking, you would point it out to us. And that we might experience as a result the kind of mountain-moving prayer you describe here, Heavenly Father. That we would see those mountains uh, dissolve before us as we trust in your immense power and grace. We, we cast ourselves on your mercy. We confess there is nothing in ourselves uh, that can chip away this mountain. It would take a million years. And we don't have that. You have to do this. I pray for the people in front of me, Lord, with those huge obstacles in their lives, that you would work and draw them to yourself and that you would enable them to pray in this way, Lord, and enable them to see the obstacle removed from them. Savior, we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.